Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special Turn Back Time podcast. I'm here this week with a good friend of mine, the man, the myth, the legend, Corey Cross. Uh, Charlie, you, you make me blush. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. And we're going to talk about 1975 this week. A, uh, the, uh, arguably, this is the height of Cher's celebrity easily this year alone. Cher appeared on over 200 magazine covers, which is crazy. And the most iconic of these is a Time magazine cover. You know you're real if you're on Time magazine. In a 1974 Met Gala outfit, revealing, feathered, silvery, you know it. (laughs) Oh, yes, I do. You know me, I love fashion, but that, I mean, Cher going to the Met Gala, that's all you have to say. That's an iconic look that everyone knows. Yes, but this cover was actually banned in Florida for being pornographic back in the day. But (laughs) what does Florida know as we've seen this year? So (laughs) (laughs) we're not talking about 2020. We're talking about 1975. Yes, sir. So, yeah, and in addition to this, Cher was all over television. It's the best year for Cher on television, mostly because of her solo TV show, which I'll be discussing next week. Can't wait for that. But some interviews as well. We got this year, we got, let's see, a special with gossip columnist Rona Barrett. She interviewed Cher, Liza Minnelli, and Margaret and Raquel Welch. That's a trio right there. Yeah, Holy quartet, moly. Really? Quartet, I, that, <laughs> that is. Oof. Man. We also got a couple good talk show appearances with Dinah Shore and Dick Cavett, icons too. Most definitely. And she's very real and she's very revealing and candid in these interviews. And it's nice to hear, I would say, overall. So worth checking out if you're a fan, I would recommend. But the funniest interview was from The Tonight Show. And this was not with Johnny Carson. There was a guest host named George Segal. I'm not very familiar with him, but he was the guest host this episode. And Cher popped up at one point. And at one point, they were talking, and she saw his notes, and she asks him, what have you got there? And he said, I have some questions for you. And then she says, are they any of your business? <laughs> <laughs> She was struggling with that in 75. She was struggling with that or, you know, in my opinion, that that them be the tabloids being inside, you know, that's all it was. And I just love it. She didn't care. She wasn't having it. It's kind of a precursor to her 86 Leatherman appearance, Heard, which is legendary. I can't that'll be discussed weeks from now, but it was pretty iconic. (laughs) But. No, it's so awkward, though. He's so uncomfortable. And then she tells a story about Sonny kicking a dog, which is awkward, too. And then Goldie Hawn just shows up out of nowhere, clearly because they were uncomfortable. So, Really? Yeah. Get at, I, I, I got to check that one out. Get out of here. So they just bring out Goldie Hawn and be like, oh, my God, please save this. Yeah, she just shows up. And it's wow. a distraction. And, yeah, because it... Because she, I guess she would have played his game more than Cher would have, maybe. Who knows? And this is one year after the divorce, correct? Yes, the divorce was finalized in 1975. But, of course, Sonny and Cher were still connected to each other. They always would be. And they weren't done professionally yet. But that's a discussion for another few weeks from now. But they were not quite done yet on television. So... But the one TV appearance I really want to talk about, the one I sent you, is the one on the Carol Burnett show. Yeah. The other legendary 70s variety queen. There were many variety shows in the 70s, but Cher and Carol had the most successful ones. And Sonny, too. They were really the dominant people in this field. Uh, Inside that episode, Burnett says it like, 
we're the ladies. We got, we, you know, we have this on lock right now. And it's good yeah. to see that they, and they celebrate that throughout that whole entire, all the way to the end, yeah. uh, throughout that episode. It was yeah, well done. So, uh, no, I love this appearance. I, this is one of my very favorite shared TV appearances because I have to say, as much as there are things from the Sonny and Sharon share shows that I enjoy, comedically, they were not on par with Burnett's show. I heard that. I mean, she just had an iconic cast, Tim Conway, Harvey Corman, Vicki Lawrence, comedic legends all in their own right. You can't get better than that. And the writing was on another level with her show as well. And so I think it's great to see Cher get to participate in this slightly higher caliber of writing on a variety show. And they play to her really well. The first She first appeared on the Burnett show in 67 with Sonny, but they didn't give her a lot to do. She now, just kind of performed with him. She wasn't in any of the sketches. There wasn't too much for her to do, unfortunately. But this time, they really give her a lot to do. And yeah, I, minus the piano, the dueling piano sketch. I think she was in every one. All of them. No, uh, yeah, every one. Every single one other than that. And it's just, they're great sketches. They gave her good stuff to work with. They sure. really did. They really did. Pocahontas had me dying. Um, that The final joke right there had me rolling. Uh, it, it was crazy. But you're right. She, they, she put in her work that episode. She wasn't oh, just yeah. a phoning it in. Oh, no. So, yes. Yeah. So, as for those who haven't seen it, I'd like to run it all down. For Heard me. that. Hell, yeah. Her first part in this episode is she does a solo performance of a song on the album just this one time. Good performance. She mimes it, but that needed to be done due, due to some notes, understandably. I can't fault that. And the effects on it are super cool, especially for the 70s. These variety shows had very impressive video editors, I must say. And then... Carol and Cher sing about how they are the two ladies of variety. There are many ladies on TV headlining their own shows, but not variety shows. And they have a good time with it. They go into the audience and get them to participate. It's just a lot of fun to watch. They're both in very nice dresses, definitely. (laughs) In beautiful gowns. And you want to talk about putting her work in. They rolled that song straight into a quick back and forth that rolled right into uh that broadway-esque variety it's variety so i mean Cher was going you know she was on stage more than burnett at this point yeah at this point she was but carol will get plenty to do as well of course they work very well together i think so the next segment with Cher is the unforgettable commercials, which are were a regular segment on the Burnett Show, and Cher appears in most of them. My personal favorite of them is the last one, where she asks Harvey Corman to come to the bedroom for a second cup of coffee, and of course Carol says, "Gee, that's funny. Jim never wants a second cup of coffee." <laughs> uh, that was good, man. They they had me rolling all the way through on this one. <laughs> yeah, and then the not so eternal triangle. I loved this skit. First off, <laughs> Cher looks pretty glamorous. At that wig is something. Oh my gosh! Buns, yeah, most definitely. All in black with like just like a rhinestone uh, line on it. It was it was nice. Yes, and in this skit, she is married to Harvey Corman, but Carol Burnett is a spinster who's the other woman. And <sighs> Carol is just an expert physical comedian, and she is just hysterical on it. Once Cher gets her drunk, it is a riot from then on out. <laughs> when when Cher, so you saw, Cher accidentally rips the sleeve and then they, no one plays it. And then Cher goes all the way in and she rips the sleeve off like it was meant to happen. And then Burnett's standing there with one sleeve on, one sleeve off. And it's right as she looks like a uh, Goodwill truck emptied on her. So it's, it's more perfect than anything. And it was just live right on the spot. It was great. Oh, it was great. And then the highlight sketch of the episode, as the stomach turns... The show's soap opera parody, and Cher appears in it for only a couple of minutes, but they make the most of it. So, first off, Carol is saying, 
It's like any gypsy tramp or thief could walk in here any minute. And then Cher shows up. Why, it's Pocahontas Pirelli, the town half-breed, half-Indian, and half-dressed. <laughs> Come in, Poke. <laughs> oh, man. That shit was great. It was one... I mean, you. it feels like Cher was totally warmed up by this point, too, and she's just right there. The, the rhythm on the jokes is spot on. Yeah, she'd uh, been doing it for a few years at this point. She had gotten it down, and she was ready to play with these pros. She was. She really was. Yeah. I have to say, the one part that was a bit groan-worthy was they're talking about a hairdresser, and then Cher has to say, oh, you'll have a reservation. Yeah, she's telling my name. She got it in there. They even did a drum uh, boom, yeah. boom off. <laughs> they knew it was a groan-worthy joke even back then, but they made it work, I think, okay? It's definitely politically incorrect, but it's still funny. And the rest of the sketch is hysterical, especially Harvey Corman and drag. Oh, yes. Mother Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, that was a good one. It was a good yeah. one. And then they end the show with a rock music parody of Solid Silver Platform Shoes, which is <sighs> Carol and Cher are carrying the whole thing at this point. We also I... get to see Tim Conway's Elton John. That's what it is. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, like 15 people on stage. Pyrotechnics. I mean, we're talking about a weekly variety show, and, and they put their all into these. It was It was beautiful. Yeah, they did. I mean, Carol wrote in her book, In Such Good Company, I didn't read the whole thing, but I did skim over parts of it, and she said it was just an amazing time of creativity back in these days. I believe it. I believe it. Sonny and Cher and Carol were right next to each other, studio-wise. They would pop on each other. Yeah, they would pop in on each other. And so it just had, it was an amazing community back then. I would have loved to have walked the halls of Television City back then and getting to see these shows, All in the Family. A truly, that was a golden age of television. We talk about today being a peak age, and it is in some ways, but this also was. These were such iconic performers all in the same building. I wish I could have been there to be around all of them. Did you post that Sonny and Cher had three TV guide in one year, if it, I remember correctly? Over the course of their first series, wow. they appeared 72, 73, 74. Oh, okay. Heard that. But I mean, once, that was big time. That was yeah, You're on TV guide was, right there. That was the TV magazine. Most definitely. They were on there with all the big names. They were on there with All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and all the big names. Most definitely. And they would appear again in 76 because with their revival show, they appeared again. They were hot TV stars of the 70s for sure. But enough of the TV talk. I'm ready to talk about the music. I think you are too. <laughs> you, know, you know it. You know it. So before an album was released this year, a final share Phil Spector single was released as I talked about in 1974, Cher had briefly reunited with Phil Spector to do a single called A Woman's Story. It wasn't a bad single at all, but it failed. It just wasn't the sound for 1974, and Phil Spector was losing his marbles slowly but surely. But after this single, a duet was released as a promotional single in the early part of 75, a duet with Harry Nielsen called A Love Like Yours Don't Come Knocking Every Day. This was a cover from the 60s as well. It was originally recorded by the Motown group Marfa and the Vandellas. You might know them for Dancing in the Street and other classics. Ike and Tina Turner also recorded it as well. But Sharon Nielsen got to do it, and Nielsen was also a great singer-songwriter of the 70s for sure. And I don't think the production on this cover is as good as the Marfa and the Vandellas one. It's much cleaner, and as I said, Phil Spector was losing his touch. But it is cool to hear these two great vocalists of the 70s together and hear them do new things with their voices. What did you think of this duet? I loved it. Uh, like we were talking before, and I, I had the the uh, image of the cover up right now, and you're right. You know, it's almost like a bad uh, a bad old concert poster. 
you know, with their image, Nielsen and in in dark aviators in a cap. And it's almost like a silhouette of Cher, you know, just the yeah. black on white. That's crazy. I loved it as, as a song, though, um, mostly because Nielsen is going to back up anybody. I mean, he's I shouldn't say back up. He's going to carry his own regardless in the duet, you know, three octave singer dabbles across all genres of music. Um, that's a given. Uh, and shares talent with him culminates in the end, uh, in my opinion, where she has this, uh, like I said before, these, this really Janice Joplin tone to her where she's, she's up there belting it. I've read that she was trying to control her tremolo around this time with a voice coach uh, because she was getting crap about it. But I, it, not in this, not in this, maybe in some of Star, but not in this. Uh, she was, she was belting it out. I love this. I started off the, all of the listening for this week with this. And it was hard to keep up with this as far as, as some of the other ones go. I definitely loved it. I'm glad to hear that you loved it. I do enjoy, I just feel, wish it was executed a bit better on Spectre's part. They're vocally very good though. I agree. Yeah, most definitely. I, you could go in a lot of these. We'll go through the night, but you can go and I mean, you're talking about four or five part background players, you know, uh, yeah. way a lot of work, but it's a, it dampens a lot of of the the stuff, especially like you said in this one. Yeah, Ken. But as I said, the Phil Spector collaboration was over. However, Cher got to work with a somewhat similar producer for her album Stars. This man was named Jimmy Webb, a very well-known songwriter in his own right. His most well-known composition is probably MacArthur Park. (laughs) Of all songs, that one, Someone Left the Cake Out in the Rain, but (laughs) that is not part of this album. So David Geffen, Cher's boyfriend at the time, who got her on Warner Records, wanted Cher to do an album as a mature artist. He did not like the dark lady stuff for her, Cher didn't love it either. She wanted to be respected by her peers, the Joni Mitchells and Neil Youngs of the world. So Jimmy Webb and Cher picked every song on the album, which was a change from before. Cher didn't really get much say into the songs that were recorded up to this point. The producers were picking them. She didn't like most of them, but she wasn't going to argue with them, especially if they were successful. However, here she really wanted to make a statement. and. It's a fine record. She took on a lot of the contemporary rock songwriters of the 70s and picked songs that really reflected on her life with this album. And I think that's really impressive because normally we think of just singer-songwriters making statements, but this album is proof that an interpreter, not a singer-songwriter, can make a statement through songs as well. And she does that with this album. But sadly... People didn't buy it. It only peaked at 153 on the Billboard 200, despite some promotion. But in spite of all of that, and the fact that it's not available on streaming, fans love this album. This is a very highly regarded album in the Cher fan community. Now, I know you hadn't heard this album before. Tell me, tell me what you, did you think of it? I enjoyed it. Um, for me, it read like a concert. Um, like a show from start to finish Um, from love enough to stars. You really have a somber beginning to an all out uh, in my opinion, finale piece uh, at the end of stars. It, it wasn't until, well, I guess it was second track in bell bottom blues where I was like, okay, she's doing, she's doing other people. I didn't read the track list uh, when I first listened to it. Um, I, I was uh, familiar with it through Clapton. I was like, let's hear how she does. And, and she killed it. She killed it. Um, talking about the tremolo thing. I can, I definitely expected a share sound when I heard it. And that was the one thing that I got early on in bell bottom blues. was like, man, I always thought share was real, like deep in the throat tremolo, uh, singing. And she's, she's handling this pretty crisp. Uh, so it's crazy to hear that, that she was actually working on that. Uh, by the time we got to Jimmy Cliff, Geronimo's Cadillac, I, I needed time to talk about. <laughs> but, oh. what, I mean, that 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 song is, is awesome, and then it's, it's captivating. 
I still can't figure out what her story was in it, but uh, we'll we'll talk about Geronimo's Cadillac yes, in a bit. Will. You I know, have some thoughts on that one as well. But of course, we have to start at the beginning, like we do, which is love enough. This one actually was written by a singer-songwriter named Tim Moore, an under-the-radar artist of the 70s. However, a couple of his songs were hits for Art Garfunkel and the Bay City Rollers. Not their top hits, but top 40, so that's something. I like this one. It's not one of my top favorites here, but I feel like it is a nice, mellow opening to the album. I love the backing vocals on it. And I think it just has a simple lyrical sentiment. We need to love more. And it really eases the listener into the album. So those are my thoughts on Love Enough. I'm right with you. Um, I I jumped ahead on the album, but that was the first thought I had when I turned this album on was, okay, this is a great way to get into the album. uh, That you can only really up the tempo and up the uh, intensity from there. And, and, and it held its own as an opener. Oh, definitely. And yes, number two is one we already talked about. Bell Bottom Blues, Derek and the Dominoes, a.k.a. Eric Clapton. This is a legendary song. I love this song in its original form, even though this was the first version I heard of it. But I went to go look up the original, and I love it. It's about... Eric Clapton's unrequited love for Patty Boyd, wife of George Harrison. I don't quite know who Cher was singing this to. She hadn't had trouble getting a man up to this point, but I think it's a great cover. I love her voice on it. She does some falsetto notes that we hadn't heard her do before. And it's a rocker. I mean, you were talking to me earlier Derek and the Nominos band members were playing on this track, and that's why we hear this Clafton-esque arrangement. That's why it's such a faithful cover that works so well. I totally agree with that. Uh, you couldn't have said that better. It sings out like a Clapton cover without the vocals, you know? And and she adds them right in herself. It It is really, really well done. It's one of them ones that gets stuck in your head. Uh, I've been singing it all day every day for since you sent it to me and it's one of my favorites of all time it was it was great to hear done and done well oh definitely and uh, she performed this song on tv once so it was in 75 it was a tv special for comedian flip wilson she did a good performance of it she doesn't quite hit the notes as well as on the studio version but she does a good job of it still especially live and in a tv studio which wasn't built for music have you ever seen her because my thought while i was listening to this was it would be really neat to hear her later share like when she's just owning her voice and and doesn't care who thinks what have you ever heard her do this live later on in her career i have not now it'd be interesting to hear she yeah it would be i don't think she certainly wouldn't hit the notes that she did here now no i picture it totally dropped you know like in a she just takes it way lower but i would i would love to hear it i would too but she has not performed any of these songs live in concerts ever wow yeah And, well, we'll get more into that when we're done talking about the album. I have thoughts on all of that, and so did she eventually, but... Yeah, so actually, though, this special was a bit of an event for Cher. So another guest on this special was Richard Pryor. Oh. And uh, he did a stand-up set in the middle of it while the cameras weren't rolling, and he let the expletives fly like he did. (laughs) That was prior for you. And it offended Nash's McLean Stevenson, who was also on the special. And this led to things escalating. Pryor was not happy. And at one point, an NBC page stopped Pryor's family from exiting the studio using a fire door. And with that, Pryor took a swing at the page. And Cher was terrified and locked herself in her dressing room because she was frightened of Richard Pryor. (laughs) Wow, really? That's yeah. crazy. He was a wild man, Mr. Pryor, from what I've heard, and that's proof of that. Anyway, on to the next song, which is more mellow than Richard Pryor would have ever allowed, I think. <laughs> <laughs> These days, 
This song, this was one of the first songs written by Jackson Brown. He wrote this when he was 16, which blows my mind. I wish I was that deep at 16. That introspective, mind blown. He was not the first to record it, though. It was first recorded by Nico of the Velvet Underground in 1967 for her album Chelsea Girl. It was covered a few times after that. Jackson Brown himself did it in 73 on his second album, For Every Man. And that same year, his friend and another person who will be a big part of this podcast soon enough, Greg Allman, recorded it as well. (laughs) (laughs) This was the year that that saga began for sure, but that is the subject of a separate episode in the future. (laughs) That's a whole other thing, but... I love this version a lot. I think it's the best version I've heard of this song, and here's why. I feel like vocally, kind of like Nico, Cher has a heavy quality to her voice. I feel like it's what made the song like Dark Lady effective. But she also sounds more earnest here than ever in the way of a singer-songwriter. And so I think her vocal here is amazing, and I love that arrangement of it it's a lush orchestral arrangement it's really well played it sounds like a share song it's not totally stripped down and i just think that they really did this very well i think jackson brown is amazing to begin with you know that i think that and uh, it's just a brilliant cover that's really all i have to say about it uh, there's there's not much that I could even add to that other than the narrative of the song, the, the narrative being of that song is, is perfect for, like you said, her earnestness inside of it. Uh, she really just, she hit it. She hit it. I, I feel like Jackson Brown would be like, perfect. You know, uh, I, I feel like it was a, a beautiful take and another great cover. Now I'm ready to talk about the next song, which is Mr. Soul, a Buffalo Springfield cover written by Neil Young. This is the first full out, okay, not the first full out, but it's more full out rock than Bell Bottom Blues. I think that has a melancholy feel to it. This is a rocker. And Neil Young wrote this song when he was only 21, which I think is crazy because he was already that angry with the music industry at 21. This was before he had even gotten together with Crosby and Nash. <laughs> this was on Buffalo Springfield again, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, this, this, you, this was, I agree, this was the rocker. This was it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she rocks a little here. And I think she really made a statement with this song. I think this was a very conscious choice. She had right to be disillusioned with the media at this point and the way they were covering her. I mean, even in the Her Tonight Show interview, she said, I don't have to be doing anything for people to think I'm doing too much. She was disillusioned with it. She was also irritated with the music industry for boxing in her creativity and forcing her to record songs she hated. This was a point she was making here, and I really respect it. She was trying to stay true to herself during this time. This is her statement, I feel like, kind of a many years before Peace of Me by Britney Spears almost. That's a stretch I'm making there. Uh, It's a good analogy. Somewhat, yeah. Did you like this cover? I know you like Neil Young. You know I love me some Neil Young. Uh, This was a good cover. If if I ranked it against the other covers, it's not my favorite on the album. But I definitely agree that, one, I didn't even think about the meta on that of her talking to the music industry and where she was in her life. Um, But just what you were saying earlier, her getting that genre-breaking image Uh, which had to have been, and I know we'll talk about this later, but had to have been attached to the variety show aspect of her life, in my opinion. But that aside, uh, definitely set her up on this album as as being able to hit them all. Uh, This was The Rock. This was The Rock. Yeah, definitely. And you're right about the variety show image because that image didn't allow her to do songs like this. At all. If she before had done Neil Young, I feel like it probably would have just been Heart of Gold, maybe after the Gold Rush. That's a maybe, too. And those are both great, but gave her a chance to make a statement and be real with it. And so that's why I respect it so much. It's not my favorite here, but I respect it a lot. 
Definitely. That's where I'm at with it. So the first side of the album ends with just this one time. This is the only song on the album that was actually written by Jimmy Webb. He recorded it first himself a year earlier as the Glenn Campbell. This is one of his best songs. This is definitely a lyrically better song than the car for park. That's for sure. Jeez. <laughs> but yes, I think this is a beautiful ballad and her vocal on it is the best on this album. That is primarily because of the end. She hits a Mariah Carey style whistle note on this one. That is not something you would associate with Cher usually. I don't think she could do it today at all. But she did it back then. Whoever was training her really brought out a lot in her voice. And uh, it's breathtaking. And I really feel that she's feeling this song. And that the notes on that she hits are just breathtaking. That's really, I'm, I'm left speechless by it, really. The only other thing I have to say about this is I feel like this should have been the single from the album. The reason I say that is because it wasn't a well-known song before this at all. And it's the most Cher-like song on the album. It is not as much of a stretch for her to the public as some of the other tracks. I think it had a better chance of succeeding than the song that was a single. That's just my opinion on it. Even though this isn't my favorite song on the album, I think it should have been the single. In my notes for this song, I have that note. Uh, and that is the blistering high note that is the note I'll remember from this album. Like that's oh, the, yeah. you know, that that's, I didn't expect it. And I can say, I don't think I've ever heard it uh, at out of share. Uh, it was crazy high. It, yeah. at, when I first heard it, I thought like, is that fake? But it was not, you know, yeah, it was, it was her hitting it, it. When I first heard it, I thought it was one of the backup singers. Heard I was like, what this was a one and done thing this didn't happen again but i'm glad it happened this one time i will say that just this one time i'm glad it happened (laughs) now side two of the album begins with my favorite track on the album geronimo's cadillac this song was actually first done by michael martin murphy best known for his hit wildfire i think this song is brilliant and i'm not going to explain it too much because Murphy himself explained it in a a magazine interview. And this was his explanation. The two images together, Geronimo and a Cadillac just struck me as a song title. It was every irony I could ever think about our culture in two words, their attempt to make of him what we would define as a civilized person. That was the reason they put him in a Cadillac in the first place. He was actually in jail at the time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. I needed that. I've been struggling with this song all week. And like I started to say earlier, and I'm so glad you cut me off and and reeled me back in because I needed that quote. Wow. Dig it. I love this song too. So (laughs) I love the irony of it. I think it's a brilliant song. And I think it was a bold song for this time period. People were not writing about this. People were still very much living in the revisionist history bubble that we're just now starting to come out of. People were still making the Pocahontas reservation joke on the Burnett show. You know, that that mindset was still there. I totally agree. Totally agree. And just two years earlier, Cher put out Half Breed. (laughs) I mean, we were, America was not thinking about how we stole the land of the natives. This song acknowledges that. And uh, puts it out there. And so I just think it's so brilliant and progressive for this time period. And that's why I love it so much and why it's my favorite. And it gets stuck in your head too, I think. I just adore this song. This is a classic. She performed it on the Cher show, her own show. And it was a mind performance once again, but I thought it was well done. That was, that was the one you sent me, right? It was well done. Definitely was. Yeah. Would have been cool if there were actually a Cadillac, but... I thought the same thing. Like, you should be driving around a Cadillac right now. (laughs) They spent too much on her outfits on that show. That was the problem. If they cut back that budget, maybe they could have had a Cadillac, but nope, they didn't think of that. Oh, well. The outfit was cool, but the Cadillac would have been cooler. (laughs) Most definitely. Most definitely. So... 
Yeah, that's Geronimo's Cadillac, my favorite song on the album. Next up is The Bigger They Come, The Harder They Fall. This song was actually called The Harder They Come. She doesn't change the lyrics. I don't know why they did this. It was a cover of a song by reggae singer Jimmy Cliff. This is probably my least favorite on the album, if I were to pick one. I like the arrangement okay. It's a good reggae light thing. I just don't think it's the best fit for this album. I feel like it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in regards to like the Jackson Browns and Eric Clapton's present here. And I don't think it's the best style for her vocally. I'll give her credit. At least she didn't attempt to do an accent. Other singers would. Not going to name names, but it would happen. At least she didn't do that. But if I had to pick a least favorite here, it would be this one. But it's still better than weaker tracks on other albums, so I can't complain about it. This one here for me, it was tied. It was tied to me already. Um, so as soon as I heard it come off, I was like, oh, my God, she's doing Jimmy Cliff. Let's hear this. And I can go both ways on it. I, I definitely uh, can see where you say it's a sore thumb of the album. It does stick out. And for her voice style, I had a real tough time. She kept coming down so hard um, from one and all. Uh, Cliff used to run it off one and all. And she, she hits it so dead on. It's like one and all. She messed around with it every once in a while. Maybe that's me being nitpicky on it. But uh, on the flip side, I got to give it to, this is one of the ones where I was like, man, these these session players, at this point, I hadn't even looked who was on the record, but yeah. these guys are crushing it. I mean, they're doing a steel drum uh, just like the original. I got a chance to see Jimmy Cliff do this a couple years back at Merriweather uh, at a Jerry Garcia uh anniversary birthday anniversary and they killed it and it was so close to the the arrangement that we see on stars um so i give it i give it no i give it points both ways you know uh not my favorite again like you said but it it was a good cover you know they played the hell out of it no but Overall, though, vocally, her best, she does a much better Jimmy Cliff cover like 15 years later live. She did Many Rivers Across. Oh, heard that, heard and that. And I think that was a better fit for her voice, especially 15 years later. I definitely have to check that. Yeah, yeah, that one I liked. I think that one was a better song for her to do than this one, especially 15 years later. Just my opinion, though, but... Speaking of songs she recorded 15 years later, the next song is one she did as well, Love Hurts. Probably the most famous song overall on this album. This one's a modern-day standard, basically. It's been done so many times. So it was first done by the Everly Brothers back in 1960, and quite a few other people before that. The most well-known version by Nazareth was released months before this one. This is not like the Nazareth version at all. This is mellow and sedate, but I love it. I like the bombasticness of the Nazareth version and the re-recording she did of it in 1991, which was closer to the hit version. But I feel like she gives a powerful vocal performance even with this subdued arrangement. And it just shows that she can do them both for a song like this. This is a song that's been done many times. She can do it both ways. And that's what I really like about this cover overall. So it's not my top favorite here, but I do appreciate it a lot. I'll say that. This one for me, as I won't say a share outsider, but like this one, as soon as it came on, it took me a second, but I quickly was like okay it's love hurts i was a little tiny bit surprised but then automatically i had set a standard on what i thought share would do with the song and my share standard comes from later on in her career so i feel a lot of times especially in this i was super happily surprised uh it was way her vocal arrangement was way lighter and like you said it's still care, excuse me, carried over the subdued arrangement behind it. You know, they really pulled back on the, like the harpsichord heavy love hurts. You know, uh, I, I definitely, I definitely agree. She did a great job 
despite the wishy-washy arrangement on this one. The, the version you'd expect she did do in 1991, because that was that was the version you would have expected from the If I Could Turn Back Time era share. That's exactly so, what I thought automatically, too. Yeah, and she did it eventually, and I slightly prefer that version, actually. I like the rockier version of it. I think this is a brilliant power ballad, but I appreciate this one as well. That's where I'm at with it. So there's that. Love Hurts, a song she did well twice. Who else can do that? I don't know. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I think I heard something again. Oh, well. Okay. So the second to last song on the album is Rock and Roll Doctor, recorded by Little Feet and written by Lowell George and Fred Martin. This is kind of, I know the essay that I sent you about said this is the answer to Mr. Soul, which I agree with. This shows the positive side of uh, music. And I love her vocal on this one, too. I think she's having fun with this song more than any of her on the album. She has a kind of jazzy rhythm going with it while she's singing it, but she still sounds like a rock singer. And so I feel like she com- is combining some of what she learned on the variety show where she did some of these jazzier songs. And I don't think they were always the best fits for her voice. Like I've said before, I feel like those performances were more about the visual than the music. But I feel like she is using what she learned from doing so many of these songs over the years and applying it here. And I think it works really, really well. This is one of my favorites here as a result of that, for sure. Yeah, this one acted as like a second set power up for me, you know, at the end of this song, I was like, Oh, I hope it's not ending anytime soon. Um, even though it's next to last on the album, uh, it's a little feet cover and you have Fred Tackett playing guitar on it. So, you know, uh, I hope I would like to think that a lot of the, uh, just like you said, a lot of her, um, soul, a lot of her jazziness in this song, I would like to think, you know, you got Tackett right there being like, check it out. This is how we were doing it. You know, this is this is exactly how we were setting it down. Uh, I like this. I really do. This is this is up there on this album for me. Yeah. No, Tackett there definitely helped as well. But I also just think this is her evolution as a vocalist as well. But yes, sadly, it is the second to last song on the album. And the final song is the title track, Stars. This was written by Janice Ian, most known for her hit at 17. This version, according to the essay, removed some of the more personal verses from the Ian version. I think it still works really well, though. This isn't really a song so much as a poem, I think. This is a long-form poem with rhymes and everything. It doesn't have the traditional verse-chorus thing going. But I also think it's the most revealing song here because this is about fame. And it's about how fame can affect everyone differently. And I think that's a really important message. And I'm sure Cher had a lot of mixed feelings about her fame at this point in time, especially because she was still only 29, still grappling with a lot of it. Yet she lived much of her life under the spotlight at this point. It questions the meaning of being a celebrity. And I feel like those are questions she was asking at this time. I mean, at the beginning, she even says, this is how I really feel. I don't normally sing how I really feel. But this is it. And so I think this is the statement of the album. I think it's a perfect closer. It's not as bombastic as something like Just This One Time, but the message of it is so clear that I feel like it has to be the closer of the album. And it's another one of my favorites here. I agree. I hope that she picked it as the single for this album. You know, like I hope that was her, like we're doing this title track and all because it's how I feel. Uh, and that powerful message is so done correctly with that powerful, uh, arrangement again, like it starts so low and it just has this crescendo, like, uh, being about it. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, like I said before, finale piece to this album. Yeah. So I forgot to mention, this was not the single. The single was actually Geronimo's Cadillac. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. So I, I, I thought it was the title track single. No. And so, huh. as I said earlier, even though that's my favorite on the album, I don't think it was the best single for choice for the album because I don't think America was ready for it. 
Yeah. It actually did make it into the top 40 for Murphy, but just barely. Yeah, that's crazy. So he, and he, it was his title track on Geronimo's Cadillac, right? So that's a, that's a very weird choice for the, the, the single off this. I think so too. I mean, I love it. I get why it was chosen quality wise, certainly, but agreeable, agreeable. I don't think it should have been the single here as much as I enjoy it. it. I don't think it was the best choice. I think it was too real for people. America was too comfortable with their half breed share for her to be singing this, I think. So yeah, overall, I think this is the best album I've covered up to this point. I think it's her best seventies album. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I think it's her best because I just feel like it's such a strong statement that she only ever made a statement like this once again in her career in 2000, but that's far, far away from now. Heard. So, and, and what, what a crazy, what, or what a genius way to make that statement about being a celebrity, about being inside of the music industry showing the the downside the mr soul side to the rock and roll doctor side and doing it with other artists works you know uh that's a that's a pretty a pretty genius way of getting that point across um it's an all-star caliber album i can't i can't say that more than enough like i look at the names on this and i think like man they were having a party you want to talk about television city. I mean, look at who was sitting in at sunshine records on this bed. I mean, you know? yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's mind blowing, especially because you got Derek and the dominoes guys. Like we said, you got little feet guys. You got all types of beautiful artists sitting in on the songs that they made. It and that was easy to do definitely because of Geffen and the fact that they were at Warner brothers. I feel like that made this all, very possible. So as I normally do, I give the album a grade. This is an A all around for me, all around. And I normally just do a top three picks, but for this one, I'm going to do a top five because there's too many I like. So yes, number one for me is Geronimo's Cadillac. My number two is Bell Bottom Blues. Then I would pick these days, just this one time and Rock and Roll Doctor. That's my top five. Nothing here is bad, though. Everything here has something recommendable on it to me. And I think it's a shame that this album isn't on streaming. I'll talk about that after you say how you feel your overall consensus. But Ooh, my, my t- top five off the top of my head is going to be tough, but I'm going to definitely do it. I, I give this an A. I'm with you on that. Um, that's as an album. I give it an A. Uh, I, I know we're going to talk about it later, but I, I can't believe the critical nastiness it got the hate that it got back then um it's it's mind-blowing top five uh i'll start with five and i'm gonna go the bigger they come um it's sentimental to me and i was it was a a neat thing to hear uh number four i'm gonna go mr soul number three i'm gonna go oh man Oh man, number three, I'm gonna go rock and roll doctor. Yeah. Number two, I'm gonna go bell bottom blues, and number one, I'm gonna go Geronimo's Cadillac. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that song. I was I, I know I got off on a tangent before, but I really enjoyed it. It's built perfectly as a song. A lot of these vessels, and especially because they've gone away like along so many different artists, but a lot of these songs are like perfect vessel songs. Uh, and Geronimo's Cadillac is one of them, in my opinion. (laughs) I totally agree, of course. But yeah, like you said, this album was not critically well-received at the time. I just think that people were not judging it based on the music. They didn't want to think of the variety show queen being taken seriously as an artist. These were not the songs they wanted Cher to be singing. I feel like these are the songs that it was okay for Linda Ronstadt to do this. Not <laughs> Heard. But, Heard. And I mean, no disrespect to Linda. I, I love, love, love Linda Ronson. I think she's the only other artist who could make an album like this. Actually, I would say as an interpreter, absolutely. And I'll mention her again in the future here, but 
I feel like people just didn't want to accept this. I don't think they were looking at it as a piece of art. They were looking at it based on the tabloid personality, the TV show. This wasn't what they wanted to hear. And I don't think it was judged fairly at all. And sadly, Cher herself isn't proud of this album, I don't think, really. That's Um, what... That's how I read. That's so crazy. Yeah. She said, I enjoyed making the album. I loved Geronimo's Cadillac. I wish I was a better singer at the time. And she said people were making fun of her voice at this time, which if they, if some of those people had listened to the album, I think they would have changed their tune because this shows how versatile of a vocalist she is. Shares her own worst critic, as I've seen over the years of being a fan. She has disregarded so much of her work. She isn't interested in revisiting it. I think that's one reason she doesn't perform these songs. She's <laughs> not interested in going back to something that's, a, especially something that was a failure. She hardly even liked performing some of her hits for years. So, I don't know. 153 on the Billboard had to be a huge hit to any artist. But an artist that's used to being top Billboard, when I read that, I... I immediately tried to empathize and it's got to be huge. It's got to be a huge hit. It was. And also this had to be difficult for Warner brothers as well. Her contract was not cheap. It was two and a half million dollars, which in 1975, especially was big money. Yeah. And they were at this point controlling much of the music industry. They were putting out hits on hits on hits for artists like the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, all these people putting out big hit albums. And for Cher, the bomb for them, I'm sure was disappointing for them as well. And (laughs) I just find it sad overall. And now, as for why this album is not on streaming, this is where I'm going to get into speculation a bit. So Okay. In 2008, somebody asked why this album and shares of her Warner Brothers albums of the 70s were not on CD or digital. Keith Caulfield, who was writing this column, was able to confirm Share owned the rights to these albums. Wow. Now, my speculation is, as I said, she wasn't proud of this album, sadly. And I think a couple of the albums that she released at this time, I believe she's straight up embarrassed by. A couple of the ones that come after this. And I can see why. I'm not going to get there yet, but I can see why. So I believe that she bought these albums probably when she returned to Warner Brothers some point in the 90s. My guess is after Believe Hit Big, because in 99, reissues were happening with Cher. Her prior labels were trying to cash in on her comeback. So albums and compilations were a plenty at this point in time. I don't think she wanted this being reissued. And I think that's a shame, but that's what I believe. Sadly, is the case. It, you can see it. And it, and oh man, immediately to try to empathize with that thought process as an artist where you're like, you know what? Thank God I own these records because I'm, I'm embarrassed. Uh, and and this record to be embarrassed of is is mind blowing. But I mean that's the the artist's that's the artist's plight, you know. Uh, and 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 she has to hold on to that. Uh, hopefully she'll share him one day. Uh, to own the rights to that though, I'm glad you said it was later on, or or you know, and and put some context to it because I immediately, I mean, to think of owning the rights to those albums back then. You're talking power, man. That's superpower. Uh, yeah. To to get that from out from under them, unless Geffen was like, "Hey, you're my sweetheart, so I'm going to slide you these," which is not <laughs> the case, you know. Uh, that 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 shows you how much of a powerhouse she had become uh, by the the '90s, you know. By that's, okay, that's that, yeah. I think it was. I definitely believe it happened later because at this point in time. She wasn't doing super well financially because Sonny had pocketing, pocketed many of the earnings from the prior 10 or so years of their recordings. She didn't have much to show for financially. So she wouldn't have been able to afford it. But 
by the 90s, certainly. And I don't know if that's confirmed. That was just my speculation. But I think that she had motives for wanting to keep this from release. I do wish she would at least reconsider with this album. Like I said, I understand why she's embarrassed by the Greg Allman duets album, but not this one. Not this one. Reconsider. And especially since I think a lot of the masters for other albums were destroyed from the Universal Music Fires. Heard. That that makes sense. That, I would like to hope that's more of what it is rather than her owning and hoarding a bunch of stuff that she's embarrassed about. Do you own this on vinyl? I do. I found it on Amazon a while ago, and I got a sealed copy for 75 bucks. Wow, that's a steal. Or I would think it was a steal. For that's that, awesome. For that, it is. I have not yeah. even opened it yet. <laughs> haven't even opened it. I will that's... one day, but I just haven't been able to bring myself to open it. That's one to get signed, though, too, you know? Oh, totally. When I did meet Cher, I didn't, we weren't allowed to get autographs. So, I heard. So. I do have a signed CD that someone got for me a while back, but that's awesome. Yeah. But no, I do have this album and I have a bootleg CD of it. Maybe shouldn't admit that, but I need, I need to listen <laughs> to it on my phone. Of course. Of course. And I have the other Warner albums on such CDs as well. So there you go. There you go. Keep it alive. Keep it alive. Yeah. So there we have it. Stars. Her most underrated album up to this point, certainly. One of my favorites. I know you appreciate it, which I thought you would, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad, I'm glad you picked this one for me. Uh, one thought that I had throughout this was, do you think right here and with the variety show is where she became or where, I shouldn't use the word became, where she started to manifest this residency style show that we see in her later years in Vegas and whatnot. I feel like I should have said this earlier. I would call stars the emancipation of share. This is the first post divorce album. This is the first fully away from Sonny Bono album. She did. We are seeing this and this did lay the groundwork. I think it laid the groundwork for some of, her later albums as well, because she really wanted to do this kind of music and it was not her last attempt at doing rock music at all. And it took her some time to have some kind of success with rock music. She didn't get it really until the late eighties, I would say, but this was the beginning of those seeds. You can see it. Yeah. And the variety show is definitely the beginning of the current, things that these current Vegas shows that we're seeing absolutely because it's such a big uh, spectacle especially the solo one I am really looking forward to discussing that one next week because it's so important in her trajectory it really this year is the year that Cher as we know her today I think was truly born we are seeing this lady on talk shows being real with people before it was a bit more guarded than this. We are seeing somebody do the music she wants to do, do a show she wants to do, wear what she wants. This is a new era, the beginning of it, and I'm just grateful for it. That's all I can say. I love it, man. Thanks for sharing it with me, and thanks for letting me share in this. Definitely. Thank you for... I'm happy to have had you, and thank you for adding your perspective. It was much appreciated, and... uh, Maybe we can do this again sometime. I would love to, man. You let me know. I'm with, I'm there. I will. So, all right. So thank you everybody for listening. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this as much as we enjoyed recording it. Definitely listen to stars. If you haven't already in the meantime, subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it, rate it on iTunes, follow on Facebook and Instagram at Turnback time podcast. And in the meantime, Just stay safe and take care of yourselves. And next week, I will be talking all about the Share Solo Variety Show. I cannot wait for it. So until then, peace out.